0: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In Rio de Janeiro, violent groups appropriate land and extort money from ordinary people for basic services. These aren't random thugs. They're well-connected thugs, often former police, with links deep within Brazil's government that makes them even harder to deal with than the city's notorious drug gangs. And country music has long been borrowing elements of pop and shedding some of its down-home imagery, but more changes afoot. The genre's racial politics are now on show after a breakaway hit by a black artist was booted from the category for supposedly not being country enough. First up though,
1: It is the assessment of the United States government that the Islamic Republic of Iran is responsible for the attacks that occurred in the Gulf of Oman today.
0: America's Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, blamed Iran for an attack on two tankers in the Gulf of Oman yesterday. It came just a month after a similar attack nearby on four ships, which America also claimed was carried out by Iran.
1: The United States will defend its forces interests and stand with our partners and allies to safeguard global commerce and regional stability.
2: He suggested, well, there are no other groups in the region that have the training or capabilities for this kind of thing. Shashank Joshi is The
0: Economist's defense editor.
2: Since he spoke, the Americans have also released a video showing a small boat removing a mine from the hull of one of the ships and it's the kind of small boat that the iranian revolutionary guards have been using in the region and the americans say that this points to their culpability so all of that is obviously a very worrying escalation in the region
0: so let's wind back a little bit and and talk about what exactly happened uh, yesterday
2: Well, on Thursday, two ships in the Gulf of Oman, which is right next to the Strait of Hormuz, a key oil uh, and and gas waterway, were hit by some kind of attack. Uh, Initially, it was thought to be a torpedo, perhaps a mine. One of the ships was carrying methanol, the other one was carrying crude oil. 44 of the crew were rescued, one of them was injured, but the ships were in in absolutely uh, terrible condition. There was huge plumes of smoke coming out of them. And this is worrying because it's one of the busiest routes for seaborne oil trade in the world. The Strait of Hormuz, I think, carries about 30 percent of seaborne oil trade. It's an absolutely vital choke point. And if it keeps getting um, struck like it was this week, it's going to have major consequences for world energy markets. It's going to have major consequences for the Arab states in the region who were the major oil exporters in that part of the world. And the timing of these strikes is also extremely curious. How do you mean? Well, Shinzo Abe, the Japanese prime minister, was in Iran. He was meeting Iran's President Hassan Rouhani. And on Thursday itself, as the attacks took place, he was meeting, uh, very unusually for any for any Western or Western allied leader, he was meeting the supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei. And that was essentially seen as a sort of US encouraged effort by Japan to try and find a way to begin a dialogue between the U.S.-Iran uh, amid a period of spiraling tensions uh, and a sense that the, the nuclear deal was falling apart, the region in Yemen in the Gulf of Oman was becoming more tense, and Japan was supposed to be de-escalating that. And ironically, one of the ships that was hit was carrying Japanese cargo. So
0: why then, if it were actually Iran who did this, why would they do that during what seems to be a sensitive diplomatic moment?
2: Well, the rationale would be that Iran has something of a history of attacks on shipping, particularly in the 1980s. It fought a prolonged tanker war with Iraq, which ravaged shipping in the Strait of Hormuz and the Persian Gulf region. And this time round, we have to remember that Iran is under enormous pressure from the United States, under sanctions to prevent them from selling their oil. In the last couple of months, the US has tried to shut down any oil exports from Iran to its Asian customers who previously had sanctions waivers. So Iran is understandably furious at this. The U.S. aim is to pressure Iran over the 2015 nuclear deal to force Iran to reopen those talks and to to essentially agree to a, a more favorable deal for America. Iran wants to show it has leverage. One of the sorts of leverage it may have is the ability to influence shipping in this international waterway and to say that if we are not allowed to export oil, well, our Arab adversaries, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, they won't be allowed to export oil.
0: It's impossible to escape comparisons with the the attacks that happened very nearby almost exactly a month ago. Do do you believe they're linked and, and that the motivations behind them would be the same?
2: It's very hard to see how they wouldn't be linked. The Americans certainly think that Iran conducted the attacks... Uh, a month ago as well, that uh, it it was Iran that planted mines on the four ships that were anchored off the United Arab Emirates. And that also was a a moment of serious tension. That was just days uh, after the Iranians had said they would withdraw from provisions of the nuclear deal. It was very shortly after the Americans had escalated sanctions on Iran. And I think it wouldn't surprise me at all to learn that this was the next stage in Iran's effort to apply calibrated calculated pressure on international shipping to show the United States, if you can put pressure on us, we can put pressure on you uh, through your allies, through the international uh, shipping channels, um, but don't think we will sit back and swallow all of these sanctions you were throwing at us.
0: But it's not just America who will be paying attention here. I mean, what does this mean for for the wider region and, uh, and the other entanglements that Iran has?
2: Well, I think the most um, serious escalation occurring in parallel is in Yemen. In Yemen, in recent months, we have also seen an escalation between the Saudi-led coalition and the Houthi rebels, who uh, have in the past been backed by Iran in some very serious ways. In the past few days, we saw a Houthi cruise missile attack on a airport in Saudi Arabia that injured dozens of civilians. And again, when the last tanker attack took place about a month ago, we saw a attack on oil pumping stations in Saudi Arabia by a Houthi drone. So the sense by Saudi Arabians and and others is that Iran is putting pressure on the region, not just at sea, but also through the Houthi movement on Saudi Arabia, on the UAE, on its Arab allies. And in turn, Saudi Arabia is putting pressure on the Houthis, whom it sees as Iranian proxies. So in other words, this escalation at sea is probably also connected to escalation in Yemen. And that's very bad news for Yemeni civilians caught up in the civil war over there.
0: And so where do you see this ending then? Where uh, where does the escalation stop? Or how could it be stopped?
2: Well, it, let's remember that if Iran is responsible, it's trying to stay below the threshold of US military escalation. It's trying to keep its attacks, if it is Iran, at a sufficiently low and calibrated level that it doesn't give the Americans an excuse to attack. But of course, that's a very dangerous game to play. We don't know how the United States will respond. In the 1980s, when international shipping was repeatedly attacked, at one point the Americans lost patience and conducted a huge campaign of airstrikes on Iranian boats and Iranian oil platforms. Now, John Bolton, America's national security advisor, a very hawkish man, may see some advantage in a similar show of force. For now, his Arab allies don't want to escalate to the use of force. That would disrupt their economies. It would disrupt oil shipping even further. But I think we are now in a situation where it's easy to see how a misunderstanding, a miscalculation could easily result in a serious, serious military response by the United States against Iran.
0: Shashank, thank you very much for
2: joining us.
1: Thank you. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit eiu.com. When Jair Bolsonaro
0: was elected president of Brazil last year, it was on a promise to restore law and order. In his inauguration speech, he called for strengthening the
2: police and
0: the armed forces,
2: too.
0: Then, shortly into his term, he signed a decree, making it easier for citizens to buy and own guns. Security begins at home, he said. Indeed, Mr. Bolsonaro's record on security in his own hometown of Rio de Janeiro is mixed. A big problem is militias, who seem to be very well-connected. The president's son, Flavio, used to employ relatives of an alleged militia boss. Another of Mr. Bolsonaro's sons used to date the daughter of an alleged militiaman who was arrested for alleged involvement in the murder of an opposition politician named Marielle Franco. All deny wrongdoing, but in and around Rio, evidence of the stubborn power of militias is everywhere.
3: I went to a place called Duque de Caxias, which is an industrial city of around 900,000 people north of Rio de Janeiro.
0: Sarah Maslin is The Economist's Brazil correspondent.
3: I climbed a hill there in a neighborhood called Salbento with a local environmental activist who showed me hundreds upon hundreds of nearly identical tin-roofed shacks. According to her, this whole area used to be federal land, swamp land. But a couple decades ago, groups called militias started snatching up the land, filling it in with dirt, building houses, and selling them to poor people. These militia groups control everything in the neighborhood, charging the people who live in the houses for water, cooking gas, TV, the internet. And... They enforce their control with the threat of violence.
0: So who are these militias?
3: So the militias are violent paramilitary groups made up in a lot of cases of current and former rogue police officers and other agents of the state security apparatus. They got their start offering false security to people in peripheries of Rio that were neglected by the government. But these days, they're essentially mafias that make their money by extortion. Rio de Janeiro is more typically known for its problems with drug gangs and the violence that they cause. These militias are equally feared, and in some ways, they're even more difficult to deal with because they're often people with close connections to the state.
0: So how how can you sort of see their, their power in places around Rio?
3: The story of militias is really one of impunity. There are arrests all the time, but often those accused get out of jail and the groups haven't been dismantled. That said, the presence of militias is kind of a big open secret. It's It's easy to tell by what these neighborhoods look like and what people in them say, you know, in hushed voices about what's happening.
0: So what do you mean you can see their influence?
3: One of the most telltale signs of militias is something called gatunecchi, which is a snarl of illegal internet and television cables. When you see a telephone pole with thousands of cables coming out of it, that signals that someone is hooking it up off the official grid and charging people for it.
0: And so is, is the, the influence, the effects of these militias getting worse?
3: They've been a problem for a long time, uh, and there was a period about 10 years ago when the state government investigated them and exposed them. However, they found ways to adapt and become less brazen and more enterprising, and the violence has continued. They made headlines last year when a black queer city councilwoman named Marielle Franco was murdered. And a militia from the west zone of Rio is suspected in her death.
0: But as part of his campaign, Mr. Bolsonaro made pledges about, you know, getting getting rid of this kind of corruption, this kind of violence.
3: Yes, that's right. Um, Bolsonaro was elected largely because he promise to bring down the violence in Brazil. Rio is an important test for Bolsonaro. He's from Rio, his family's from Rio, and, and Rio is really a symbol for Brazil's moments of triumph and its moments of struggle. So far, though he talks all the time about ridding Brazil of corrupt politicians and criminals and drug gangs, He's really downplayed the danger of militias. Some of his policies people fear could make militias reign even stronger. He's made it easier for all Brazilians to carry weapons, implying that people need to protect themselves from criminals because the government's not going to do it. And his government has also proposed bills that would make it really tough for police to get in trouble for committing excesses and even killing people on the job.
0: So, so what should be done? What, what is the way out of this?
3: So it's interesting because Bolsonaro's justice minister, Sergio Moro, has suggested applying some of the same tactics used to tackle corruption in Brazil in the Lava Jato investigations to taking on organized crime, specifically a follow the money strategy that goes after the economic activities of the militias and the drug gangs. That sounds good. And that strategy will be put to the test in a favela I visited called Muzema, where two buildings illegally constructed by militias collapsed in April, killing 24 people. When I went there, the government was clearing the bodies from the rubble and police investigators were starting to try to track down who was responsible. At the same time, all around, you could hear the sounds of drilling and hammering new buildings that the militias were putting up.
0: Sarah, thanks very much for coming in.
3: Thanks, Jason.
0: It's a viral Internet sensation and has now been American number one for 10 weeks. Old Town Road has conquered the charts, and with it, it's star Lil Nas X, a 20-year-old who made the song from his sister's couch. But it hasn't been universally beloved.
4: With its banjo strum introduction, a cowboy theme, and lyrics like Riding on a Tractor and Wrangler on My Booty, not to mention a very catchy chorus... Little Nas X's Old Town Road should be a country music hit. It is not.
0: Rosemary Ward is The Economist's New York correspondent.
4: It was kicked off Billboard's country music charts two months ago for not embracing enough elements of today's country music. Billboard went on to tell... Rolling Stone magazine that the decision to take the song off the country charts had nothing to do with the race of the artists. Little Nas X is a 20-year-old African-American who happened to blend hip-hop, rock, and country music in this song and does not look like the typical country music singer. The genre's stars tend to be white as well as overwhelmingly male. What happened to Old Town Road is a demonstration of the shifting dynamics of this all-American genre, Country music's greatest strength has been its ability to celebrate real working folks. But it seems that those real working folks tend to be white. Country music has typically promoted in its imagery and its lyrics um, an implied white identity and increasingly a very masculine one.
0: So how is that changing?
4: Um, Well, a recent paper in Rural Sociology a Journal examined the shifting masculinity in mainstream country music. Its author, Brandon Leap, who is a professor at Mississippi State University, analyzed the lyrics of top songs on the weekly Billboard country music charts from the early 80s right through the 2010s and found that in the early years, men were usually depicted as breadwinners and stand-up guys, you know, think... Um, 18 Wheels and a Dozen Roses by Kathy Mathea is a good example from 1988. Dozen but that has changed. Over the past decade, more songs objectify women and are about hooking up. His examination of lyrics also found that masculinity and whiteness have become more closely linked. References to blue eyes and blonde hair were were completely absent in the 1980s, or nearly absent. By the 2000s, such references were definitely taking up a, a larger proportion of the songs on the radio. Featured by Jake Owen from 2014 is another good example of this.
0: So he found that the lyrics have been changing. I presume that the artists themselves have, too.
4: Yes, exactly. Country radio is a powerful gatekeeper, and increasingly female artists are disappearing from country music airplay. Jada Watson, a musicologist from the University of Ottawa, looked at radio airplay and found that women began the millennium with about a third of the songs on the air, and that dropped to just 11% in 2018. That's a sixty-six percent decline.
0: So so the imagery is changing and the gender demographics are, are changing, but the, the experience of Old Town Road suggests that there's some some ructions around race as well.
4: Absolutely. Although there've been a few standout black artists going back to the fifties, like Charlie Pride and more recently Darius Rucker and Kane Brown, who've all been extraordinarily successful, you don't hear too many African American country artists on the radio. Some popular white artists have rapped on country ditties, yet, as Lil Nas X Old Town Road shows, when a young black man in a hip-hop context uses similar imagery and sounds that we might hear from that same white male artist who dominates country radio, he doesn't get much play.
0: So where do you think this is going? In, in 10, 20 years' time, what do you think country music will look and sound like?
4: Well, country music historian Charles Hughes told me that the fact that Lil Nas X had to force his way in is a real commentary on country music's long-term racial politics. Country music has always had a very uneasy relationship with blackness, but I think his crossover appeal, he's currently at the top of all of the pop music charts, shows that perhaps the gates of controlled country music are starting to fall.
0: Rosemary, thank you very much for joining us.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.
4: Businesses have long had to cope
0: with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the 5th Annual
3: Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com.